You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. <coughs> Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. With Jason and Noah Amanda again, life's getting us guys so yeah you're just gonna have to wait to hear from her for a little while because well babies are more important than hanging out with me apparently so she's doing the adult thing and feeding baby right now so i brought you today miss michelle mcgoff how are you doing today michelle very well thank you now we haven't dove real deep into your story but i know that you are an adoptee yes that's right how did you come to that? Did you come through the foster system or, or was it something that, it, you know, where you were adopted at birth or, or how did you end up in that system? Hmm. I was adopted in uh, 19, in the 1970s in Minnesota. And um, at that time, the way adoptions worked, um, even if a child was given up at birth, if there were some arrangements already made, there was an opportunity for the mother to change her mind and she had 16 weeks to do that. So before the child was placed with the adoptive family, the child would go into foster care for those 16 weeks. So that was my scenario. I had already been arranged to be adopted, but um, I still had to go to foster care. Wow, I did not realize that they did it that way. Um, I'm just gonna say it sounds like a horrible idea in my mind. You know that first, that, that first time, uh, sixteen weeks. You said, yes, sixteen weeks. That's an important time. It is, um, and the way that that whole <laughs> first part of my life went down, I, I didn't find out about this until I was in my thirties and found my birth parents. Um, I knew that I had been in foster care because there was some information in the house, some records about it. And also later, um, I think when I was four or five, my adoptive parents wanted to adopt another child. And so the foster care um, organization did a home visit. And so um, that was kind of reinforced. I knew that that was part of the process. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, did, did you always know that you were adopted? Was that part of your story from from childhood or was that was that something that, that you found out later on? I didn't remember being told. So I was made aware of it early enough that I didn't experience an event where I thought that I was the natural child of those two people and then was surprised. You know, um, it was something that I'd always known. Now, I'm always curious, how is that, or has it played a role in your life as, I mean, you're obviously not, not a, a five-year-old girl anymore, right? You're an adult now and you can, you know, how has that played a role in, in the, the woman that you've become? Mm. Um, well, if it's all right, I can tell you a bit about my adoption and how, how that happened and came to be. And yeah, then I'd, I'd love to tell you how that impacted me. Yeah, 
go ahead. Okay. Um, so I was the, I was conceived by um, a couple of teenagers, uh, not a new story. I think uh, we've heard that one several times. Um, so my, when I was born, I, my parents were 17 and 18 and they were not married. Um, my mother was disowned by her family unless she gave the child up for adoption. So that was kind of the deal. Mm. And, um, she had thought about starting a life with this man, but he was quite abusive to her, um, when I was in utero. So, um, she decided that I, it would be safer for the both of us if she left him and then, um, gave me up for adoption. When I was born, um, and I didn't find this out until my thirties, like I said, when I met my birth parents, when I was born, um, the hospital kind of screwed up. So the process at the time was if a child was meant to be adopted out, that the um, adoption agency, and I was adopted through Catholic Charities, that the adoption agency would receive the baby, that the baby wouldn't be brought to the mother after, uh, after birth. But the hospital messed up and brought me to her. And, um, you know, we bonded. You know, that was the way that she described it. She was holding me and kind of changing her mind and thinking, you know, actually, I, I want to keep this baby. Maybe there's something I can work out with my parents. Um, but then the adoption agency came and told her that she had signed her rights away, that the deal was done, there was nothing she could do. And, you know, she was a teenager. She didn't read through the contract. She didn't know that she had that time to change her mind. So uh, they took me from her. And in some way, I still remember that wound, you know, that, that time of um, being really loved, you know, and then just being separated. Um, and then at the same time, that came along with a, also a sense of rejection, you know. Um, and then I don't really know what went on in foster care, but by the time I arrived with my birth family, or sorry, my adoptive family, um, it really wasn't a good situation. They didn't really want to be parents. Um, I'd ask them why did they decide to adopt a child because they never seemed to be very enthusiastic about parenthood, you know, ever. Um, and they had told me that they had tried to conceive for eight years and were unsuccessful. And they were embarrassed when people asked them why they didn't have any children. So they adopted me apparently to stop being embarrassed by the question of why did you decide not to have children? Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe not a, maybe not a good motivational story there. Um, but it, you know, it's real. I mean, it's that, that's just what happened. Um, so these two people who didn't really maybe want to be parents also had alcohol problems. Um, they had problems with food. Both of them were obese. Um, they were both quite depressed and, you know, sad people. And so I grew up um, with kind of a multiplier. I had the rejection and the separation from my birth um, experience. And then I lived with these people who didn't really want me. So I couldn't figure out why, why would they adopt me? They didn't seem to want me. I always seemed to be a disappointment to them. And, um, you know, then they were always depressed and sad. So I grew up really with a sense of never having felt love except maybe for those first you know moments 
right when I was born. And I, th I think it was those moments when I was being held by my birth mother that I actually felt love. And that's what kept me going because it was a pretty dark, dark household to, um, to grow up in. Yeah. I hate to, I hate to, to have to talk about these sorts of things, but it's real. And not every adoptive family is the best choice and not every foster family is the best choice. You know, I've, I've heard enough stories. I remember as a kid, the one story I remember having heard about the foster system, it was a, it was on the news. I remember seeing a news, like a, a 60 minutes deal. So it was, it was an extended news story and it was a double wide somewhere in Kentucky or Arkansas or somewhere in the South. And, and they literally had like dog cages that they kept kids in. And I remember thinking like, even as a kid, I, I heard that story and I'm like, huh? Like what? What? And, and as I got older, I found you know that there are people who, who, uh, not here where I live in Missouri because you can't do it for money here, um, but because they don't they don't give that kind of money out. But people who try to do it just for money to to make their their money from the government by doing that, and I don't know. I think you have to be a special part, special kind of a horrible human to uh, to do that for money, and. Uh, but you know, people do things for the wrong reason all the time. And it sounds like that was not only a problem that they suffered with, but something that you suffered with as well. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, not having a sense of, of love or belonging uh, really anywhere. Um, that, was, that was quite difficult. And that attitude about myself really impacted my life outside of the home too. I was always looking for someone, you know, to, to love me, someone who, who wanted me. And so when I was in school, I tried so hard to get, you know, someone to like me. And I worked really hard to get the praise from my teachers. And that was one thing I did well, you know, um, academics went well for me. But um, having a sense of not belonging, having a sense of, um, no self-worth was something that you know you can't really see it on a person but it seems like people who have that sensibility are always the victims of bullies um you know the the children who get picked on or um humiliated or abused i i was that child you know i was the child that was always the the butt of all the jokes even some teachers would you know would pick up on that unconsciously and 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 would do that and so you know by the time I was maybe 11 or 12. I was suicidal. Um, I also developed, uh, you know, an eating disorder. Um, I really didn't have anything good in my life, you know? Um, and it wasn't until I got into high school where I found um, a possible place that I could go. So I went to public school. And in Minnesota, in public school, at least in my district, all of the kids, I think in either 10th or 11th grade, had to take the ASVAB. Do you remember that test? The oh, military. I, I remember the ASVAB. The ASVAB. Um, so that was a, that's a military um, kind of a skills test. It's a test to see, you know, if, if someone were to enlist, what, what maybe could they, what value could they bring? What could they be doing? And all of the kids that had, um, not all of them, but many of the kids that I knew that already had college plans, 
didn't take the test seriously. You know, they just filled out C, you know, for all the answers <laughs> and walked out because for them it, it didn't matter. Um, but I had no plans. There, there were no plans for me. All I knew is that there wasn't going to be any money for college because my, my parents just basically said I had to get out when I was 18. So um, I didn't really understand what the test was for, but I, I turned out to, to have done very well on it. And so recruiters started coming for me. And even though I was a little bit overweight, I wasn't overweight enough where the recruiters thought that I wouldn't be able to make it in basic. So um, the recruiter that kind of chased after me the most was an army recruiter, and it felt nice to be wanted for something. So I followed through with that and I enlisted. Ah, they did the <laughs> same thing to me. Yeah. And then they gave me the D-Lab. Are you familiar with the D-Lab? I don't recall the D-Lab. You might have to remind me. That's I'm a defense not. language aptitude battery. Mm. Basically, they're testing you for your ability to speak foreign languages. Oh, you know, they may have. Um, when I went to select my occupation, um, these guys have it. They just have it. I say guys, but I'm sure there are lady recruiters too. But they have it all figured out. They've got it down to a science. They have. Um, they give you like three options, and there's one they really want you to take, and then they give you a couple options that don't seem quite as good. But the other options always have bonuses. So like either way, you know, the recruiter's coming out all right. Um, and language school, that was one of the things that um, was offered to me. But I was afraid to go. I think it was in where was the school? It was, was it Monterey? It was somewhere in, in California. Monterey, California. In Monterey. It's a presidio at Monterey. That's right. Um, and it was two years. And I was afraid to commit to two years of just the training. So I took something that was half that. So I took an electronics um, role. And that had, I think, maybe 11, I think it was 11 months of training. So with basic, it ended up being um, just a little bit over a year. Yep, yeah. you must have done well on the D lab because I, <clears throat> I know enough to know that that sounds like you they, you were uh, you were you scored high enough to get selected to cap four language and and that's where I was so yeah I'm not going to say you made a terrible choice but I had a good time out there at Monterey. Yeah, I always wonder what would have happened to me, but I, when I play out the the things that I would have done with a foreign language, it always lands me to a place that probably wouldn't have been a good choice for me in the long run. So no regrets. <laughs> Yeah, it's useless for me now. I mean, honestly, I, I they they trained me in Korean, and uh, mm. so I'm not um. There's not a lot of use for that for me. And, and seeing this, it's been more than 20 years. I remember just enough to to say hi, order a beer, and ask where the bathroom is. You know, that's that's what I can still do. Clearly, I actually took my family out to a little Korean restaurant here in uh, in the St. Louis area one night, and um, <clears throat> I'd seen it before and. It had Korean kanji on, you know, hanji on the um, on the the building that said Hangbuk Chikbom, and I knew that was a restaurant. So I took my family there, and and we walked in, and we are the only non Asian people in the place, and it was a really kind of a strange feeling. It was like a almost felt like you were in in the Godfather setting. Like there was a table with the older guy, and people would come in and talk to him, and it was kind of weird. And everybody looked at us funny. And the poor waitress came over, and she struggled so hard to come up with English to talk to us. And when I broke into Korean with her, like you could have knocked her over with a feather because I don't look like your standard Korean speaking person. But yeah, it was it was. It's one of the few places that served me because we got amazing food there. Because uh, I. 
I don't know if you've ever messed around with any of the, the Asian food options out there, but the Koreans know how to cook. It's all I'm saying. They know how to make some amazing food. Oh, yes, they do. It's some of the best food on the planet. Like it's it's basically meat and vegetables and rice. And the um, the flavor profiles are so complex and they're not they tend to not be as sweet as some of the um some of the other Asian cuisines. And so I find that really appealing. It's very hearty. It's excellent winter food. Um, but they also have dishes that are nice in summer too, like the cold noodles. Um, making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's as much as it has served me. And my, my son, when he, he joined the military, he, he went and they kind of tried to do the same thing with him that you're describing. And, and, and I, I told him, I said, son, do, do what your old man did. You know, go, go to the, if go serve your country, if that's what you want to do and allow that your training to serve you when you get out. And he's been out for a few years now and, and he now makes almost the same money that I make, uh, having worked at the company I'm at for 15 years, been in the industry for 20 years. And he makes comparable money because he got all that paid for by the army and, and he, mm -hmm. he, he can go out into the real world and use that. So it's been amazing for him. So so yeah it's it's been uh that's been been a good experience for i think both of us had a decent experience through through that whole thing but um yeah so i i think when when you talk about the, you know having men in the military because i was there like that's a family unto its own hmm. it is i mean i went into the reserves so again i had i had so many fears i was so afraid to commit to something i just wanted to get out of that house and i knew if I didn't get out on my own terms, I was gonna, I was gonna get out on their terms. So meeting my my uh, my adoptive parents. So um, I got out and I I went I went into basic and then um, went into my AIT. And you know wherever you go, there you are, <laughs> Jason. <laughs> so you know uh, it didn't really solve a lot of my problems going into the military. I still had an eating disorder and it actually got a lot worse because you're weighed all the time and. You know, even though I did okay with physical fitness, um, there's still a, you know, a height and weight scale um, that you have to be within. So I struggled a lot there and my eating disorder got rampant. It was, it was really bad. And um, walking around with low self-worth in any organization, including the military, is, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go away. You know? And I didn't have the maturity to know what was going on or what was wrong with me. I just knew there was something off about me that um, I didn't see when I grew up. I grew up in a, a fairly, I, we didn't have a lot of money, but I grew up in a, a fairly affluent community. So I went to school with people that most of them had both of their parents, um, which does seem to help people, you know, succeed and, and do a bit better and have, you know, better self-esteem and self-worth. But when I got to the military, as someone enlisted um, and being around basically only enlisted people, I met a lot of people that had, I would say a lot more problems in life than what I saw in my community when I was growing up. A lot of the people there, this was their only choice. You know, they didn't have any other choices. It was their best option. And so it was a lot more of a rough, I would say a much more rough um, community of people that I was not prepared for. And I came out rougher for it. It took me a while to recover from that. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. <clears throat> because 
as much as as much as I appreciate the fact that today's um, today's American culture appreciates their veterans much more than they used to. Um, I know that having been in the military, when people talk about how veterans are all amazing, I'm like, eh, I met a few like that. Uh, I don't know if you want to call them that amazing, right? They they were there because it was their their last option, um, and they maybe weren't the most amazing humans. So they're not all the most amazing people. And so you end up with kind of that, that collection of people and, and who you end up around makes a big difference. And just like in every other part of your life. Um, so, and, and so much of who we become goes back to those, the, those childhood experiences. And I know that now I didn't know that then I know that now. And, and I look at that and I see people who struggle through things in, in their forties and fifties and, and through their whole life sometimes that goes back to some, some family of origin issues. So as you, you know, as, as you look back across your life, um, that, that mother and father wound for having lost both of your parents of your first family, has that been, been a, a driving factor in some of the struggles you've had? Certainly. Um, there was, there was a lot of abuse in that household too. And I would say that was probably the number one impact in terms of on, you know, what was on the surface going on with me. Um, but having, having missed out on a good familial relationship with mother and father certainly impacted me too. I definitely was always looking for a father figure and I didn't know that. Um, even in my career, uh, you know, I can, I can look back and see patterns, um, probably in the first two thirds of my, um, technical career where I was working for the same unavailable man that my father was, you know, the same person who wouldn't give me feedback to let me know how could I be successful? Um, or the person who would give me demands, um, or, uh, expectations that weren't possible. You know, I'd see one or one or the other basically, um, in my hiring managers and then with women, because I didn't have any close relationship with, you know, either mother and the relationship I had with my adoptive mother was, you know, very abusive. I didn't have a lot of respect for women. I was either afraid of them if they were authority figures or if they were peers, I just didn't trust them. And so I didn't have a lot of female friends. I didn't know how to keep them, you know, if I made one. And um, in fact, all of my relationships were a little inside out. I would, I would be super keen on meeting a new person and I would give them 100% trust. You know, I would never start neutral. I would give them 100% and then they would just fail. You know, they would let me down in some way because we're all human. People let each other down in a healthy relationship, you kind of start at neutral and you, you work, you work through trust, you know, together and that relationship either grows or, you know, maybe it just kind of stays in acquaintance space. That's healthy. Um, when you have a close relationship, if, if somebody, um, you know, betrays you or disappoints you, you talk about it and you make it right. Um, I didn't know how to do that because I'd never seen it. You know, I'd never seen it. So when I would have, um, even work relationships, I would be really uncomfortable, especially with the women that I worked around or worked with directly. It was very difficult for me to have a nice, even calm relationship with a coworker because if they did something that wasn't right and it impacted me in some way as an employee, I would treat them the same way that my mother would treat me, which wasn't very nice, but it was all I'd ever seen. 
you know, it wasn't until maybe my late 20s where I started to see the pattern and realize that the pattern was me, <laughs> you know, uh, and then started working on that, um, which, you know, it took a long time to work those things out. You know, I'm always brought back to an old, you know, well, you already, you, you mentioned having been, been adopted in the seventies. So I would assume that you, you probably know some of the same things that I do. Like you remember the old funny pages, right? Of course. The newspaper, right. And there was the Beetle and Bailey cartoon and there, there's one that has always stuck with me and where, you know, the, I think it was a private who, who's talking to the Sergeant and he says, Sergeant, we have found the problem and he is us. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what what helped you find that that point where you realized that the problem was was probably sitting right in between your ears um, and and it was time to make some changes to that? Well, so I was in my I was in my late 20s. I had a failed marriage. I had failed relationships before that marriage. I had a string of jobs where I was making really good money. Um, and I had these skills and aptitude to be extremely successful, but I could never quite get out of my own way, you know, and really be a top performer. And not that being a top performer is a way to measure ourselves, but I knew I had that capability and I just wasn't getting there. So it was basically a pattern in my personal relationships, a pattern at work. And also I still had this raging eating disorder, you know, and very few close friends that I could trust. So what was going well? You know, I also didn't have a family that was very supportive. So I didn't have really anything going for me. And I was still kind of suicidal. I was definitely depressed. And um, I started to seek, uh, you know, therapy and help for it. And fortunately, at that point, that was something that was covered by insurance. I think, you know, it was pretty recent. Um, that you could actually get talk therapy. Before then, it was something that only, in my opinion, like rich people could afford, and mm -hmm. I wasn't one of them. So how do you get help? So I started looking for help, and um, I started looking for help with the eating disorder because, you know, in terms of like what, what was the most uh, acute problem in my life, it was that. I mean, it's a major health problem. It, it can cause uh, and has caused for me health issues that, you know, can carry on for the rest of your life, even after leaving the eating disorder behind. But what I found is that none of the um, therapists that I met with were really equipped to handle something that, with that level of depth or intensity, you know, um, they were maybe equipped to handle a teenager who was sort of experimenting with it, but they were not equipped to handle someone who at this point, you know, had had one for, in my late twenties, I'd had an eating disorder for, you know, like, 13, 14 years, they just weren't equipped. And so I would go in and out of therapy. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s where I just kind of had a breakdown and I couldn't take another day of work and I was feeling kind of suicidal um, for two reasons. I never thought I would actually go through with it, but because now to get care, you had to get on waiting lists long waiting list like six months long and every time i would call to check to see where i was on the waiting list you'd know, wait a month and call i was still just as far down below the line as i was when i first signed up on that waiting list and so um one day i called and i was expressing my frustration you know why why can't i get up higher on the list 
And the person that spoke to me advised me that if I threatened to harm myself, I would be able to get care. Wow. <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> and what happened from that was I, I was placed with a therapist who immediately put me on disability. And I had um, short-term disability through my job. I was working for the time and I had a security clearance. I didn't know until afterward that, that that status of my mental health would affect my security clearance, which it did. Um, I was still able to work with um, customers, but not in the same way, you know, after that. But anyway, I, I went on disability and um, then I was offered to go into an, like an eating disorder program, but it was inpatient insurance paid for like a 10th of it. And there was just no, there was no way, you know, on my reduced disability pay that I would be able to cover that and my expenses. I didn't have any, I wasn't living with anybody. I didn't have anyone. So I decided not to do that. But as soon as I um, went on disability, I felt immediately lighter. And I started to realize some things about my life that um, a lot of the choices that I made, which was, you know, to basically choose the paycheck size over, you know, what it was that I was actually doing for a paycheck was probably not very good and was probably contributing to the stress that, you know, was fueling this, this raging, uh, this raging eating disorder. And then we sort of worked backward, me and the therapist, we started with what was going on right now and what was contributing stress. And we eliminated that stuff. I mean, I would still have to go back to work, but at least for that, you know, I think it was maybe 12 or 14 weeks, something like that. I was able to not have to work, you know, and go through this program. Um, I felt so much better. And so in that time, we just did a lot of therapy and worked back. And that's when I started to realize that all this stuff that happened to me in childhood was the problem. Now, it should be obvious to anybody who's reading, you know, reading this or hearing this going, well, duh, you know, you've had these problems the whole time. But in the moment when somebody says, oh, you have a lot of stress, I would just deny it because I had a good job. I had a stable, you know, income. I had my own place and I was, you know, living okay. I was able to cook and clean and clothe myself and, you know, exist in society as a contributing member. You know, what stress did I have? But it was all these things that had built up over the years that I hadn't processed. All of these feelings that were so intense that I had felt for decades, you know, almost two decades from birth until I left that household, just solid stress. And my way of dealing with that, with the, you know, emotional abuse, with the physical abuse, with the sexual abuse, all of that trauma was, it was so intense that I would leave my body, you know, I would dissociate. Um, and then when I would come back to my body, the only um, pleasure that I was really allowed in that household was food. It was the only nice thing I was really allowed to have. I wasn't allowed to have any nice clothes, any nice time, any nice, you know, experiences, just food. So I was only able to really obtain a sense of pleasure by, you know, the texture and taste of something when I was eating it. So um, it took a while to unwind all of that. I mean, certainly those three months was, was not enough time, but it, it gave me enough 
exposure to the fact that I wasn't doing the kind of work I should have been doing. I'd never seen a good relationship. You know, uh, I, I really had received a lot of mistreatment and neglect and abuse that I didn't deserve. And there I was, and um, I understood that it was up to me to deal with it. Because even though I didn't do those things to myself, you know, to give that depression to myself or give that trauma to myself, as an adult, I'm the one that's responsible for dealing with how I interact with the world. And so um, I went on a pretty long journey to figure out how to unwind that. And, um, you know, it, it, it came out in a lot of different ways. I had to find some healthy channels to, um, to release the stress that I had. And I had to find some ways to process all of those emotions that I had refused to feel for so long. It's funny, <laughs> funny you talk about dissociation. I'm a, I'm a semi-pro at that myself, and uh, I have a have one one of our kids um, who we've adopted. Um, it's kind of a familial placement. I say kind of because not technically through blood, but you know, families today have so much haves and steps, and and um, and so yeah, that that's how how we came to know this this little guy. Uh, and we've known him since birth. As a matter of fact, my wife was the other person in the hospital room when he was born. Mm -hmm. um, so he's always been part of our life, but that's, you know, he spent his first year of life in some really challenging circumstances and, um, and he's dealt with a lot of dissociation, dissociation and oh my gosh, we have been like play therapy. All I can say is, um, Miss Becky has been a wonderful addition to our, to our team. She has helped so much and given us so many tools. And, and I'm so thankful that we found that for him at, a, at an early age because he's still dealing with some of that stuff. But, but we have tools to help him work through it. And, 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 and hopefully, you know, he'll, he'll, by the time he gets to adulthood, he'll have worked through a lot of that stuff on that long road so that he's not faced with that. Because it's, it's so true that that stuff comes back from your childhood into your adult life. And it's not until you hit, I think, you know, close to 40 before you realize, oh yeah, yeah, I do the, I do some of this stupid stuff because this is, this is what I remember from my own childhood. You know, I was the dad I was at 20 years old to my older kids because that, that reminded me of who my dad was. That was how you were dad. And don't get me wrong. Me and my dad had a great relationship, you know, and um, he passed a few years ago and, and, and we had a great relationship, but there is parts of the, of, of the way that he was a dad that I tried to, to do the same thing. And it was a horrible idea. It was probably not the best idea when he did it either, but he, he didn't have a dad of his own that showed up in the house. His, his dad passed when he was very young and he had some unhealthy male influences in his life that he dealt with. And, and you see these things that become generational if you're not intentional about realizing, Hey, there's some stuff here. And then choosing to, to accept the responsibility to do the hard work to overcome that. And then when you, you know, it, when and if you move on through your life and, and become parents of your own, like suddenly you can be such a different parent. And, and the most obvious example of that in our house was one day, my little guy, one of my, my youngest uh, boys, he, he was having a meltdown. And he has those from time to time and, and I've gotten pretty good with them. And I, you know, I called him into my office here and I lowered my seat and I lowered my voice and I slowed my cadence and I took some 
some deep breaths in the middle of the conversation just to kind of get those mirror neurons firing and I got him calmed down in about 30 seconds which for a kid with he has a, a pretty impressive um, case of ADHD to get him calm in 30 seconds I'm just going to say that was actually it was amazing to watch that happen because I was impressed with that one and he calms down we talked through whatever it was because I'm certain it was over something super important like I was sitting there and then he came and stole my seat it was something like that right and and so he gets calmed down and all right dude he thanks for talking to me give knuckles boom all right he runs off to the other room happy and healthy and all that and my oldest son who at the time was probably about 22 years old he looks at me where the hell was this guy when I was that age? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you were still yeah. building. I was busy doing stupid mistakes. I'm like, and at that point, I, I think it's where he finally started to realize. Cause I'm like, you have to realize, dude, I was your age when you were his age. You know, we, we were parents young and I didn't know what, what the hell I was doing. I was, I was just a lost dummy trying to, trying to struggle my way through. And, and it wasn't until we stepped into this world where, where you begin to understand trauma and you begin to understand how it affects the brain and how it changes the thought patterns and no, it's not choices to be, you know, choices to be the a-hole in the room, but it's, it's literally the trauma taking over and your brain is trying to protect you and you do stupid stuff. And, and if you're a guy who's had some of that, or a woman who's had some of your own traumas, man, that when your kid acts out that way, it's, you're going to step into your trauma space while they're in their trauma place. And, and we're going to go have a horrible time together. And it's taken, it's taken a lot of years to get to where I know how to handle that so much better. But it, you know, honestly, I credit a lot of it. And I, I talk about him on here from time to time. Um, but Dr. Tom is, he's my guy. He's the guy who knows all the crazy of my life. And, and without that, I don't know that, that we would be the the parents that we are today because he has helped us, understand and unpack so much of that trauma and then become parents who can take care of kids in a healthy way and so good on you for for taking that time to to realize there's some stuff there and then being willing to do the work because that's the the key component you're willing to do the work and you know whether you become a parent to 25 kids or none and you know and and you're you're a friend to some people in your life that, that need a good friend whatever it is you will impact the world greatly just by having done the hard work. Yeah. Um, I had this, I had this mentor, uh, called Neil Kramer. Um, I, he, he would say this, this thing and it stayed with me for years now that there are two types of people, the willing and the unwilling, you know, and sometimes in the moment when it's hard to go on, we have to remember who we are. You know, and I'm I'm one of the willing. Right, oh, that's, that how, that's how we keep it going. Yeah, that identity piece is huge. Who you choose, who you say you are. You know, my wife for years was I I suck at math. That's what she tell you, and still today she'll tell you that. And she has the advantage of having me in her life because when we did homeschool some of our kids years ago, like I was the math guy. I'm the one who took calculus in high school because I thought it was fun. Right. I took Calc 2 in college because I thought it was fun and it was interesting. And, and so I'm the weird I'm the weird guy who loved math. But my wife would always tell you that she's she's not good at math. And it's funny to watch her. She'll walk in the grocery store and she'll tell you which one is the better buy as she does the math in her head. 
But because she says that she's not a she, math isn't her thing, she's not a math person. She'll tell you she doesn't know how to do it when I can watch her do it sometimes. But that consistent telling yourself over time that that's not who you are, it changes how you how you show up in a lot of relationships. Yeah, yeah. With math, it doesn't matter. But there's so much of the relationship stuff that does matter. That's well, it, it does matter with math, too. You know, all the stories that we tell ourselves, um, they become true. I mean, wor- words, basically, they take our thoughts and, and, and put them in motion. And then they do impact our actions. So if I say I'm willing, that impacts, you know, if I think I'm willing, and I say I'm willing, then that impacts my actions. And I go and I, I do whatever it is that I need to do to, to get out of whatever situation I'm in. Um, I see people that are very attached to negative stories uh, almost anywhere you go on social media. I see it all the time. Um, one of the things that I do in my business is I help people to release stress so that they just have more room to deal with life. And I find a lot of people who have who say they have ADHD, they don't have a diagnosis. They haven't been to the doctor, but they say, my ADD, I can't do this because my ADD. I can't do that because my ADD, or I do all these things wrong because my ADD. And this is just an example, so it's not limited to someone who may or may not have ADHD, but it's a, I think it's a relatable story. I can't find my keys because my ADD. I can't find my phone because my ADD. And I, I just think, gosh, isn't it just more a case of like your cup is full and you don't have room for short-term memory? You know, when we don't process our emotions, even from the little everyday stresses, like getting a phone call when we are not expecting it and don't have time for it. That's just a little bit of stress, right? Um, or, or maybe, you know, spilling something when we're cooking dinner, just a tiny bit of stress. If we deal with it by getting angry and pushing it aside, or if we don't process it at all and just ignore it and let it worm into us and bother us, eventually the amount of room that we have for this, we run out. We don't have an unlimited space for this. So then what happens? The next stressor comes up, be it big or small, we know what the healthy response is, but what happens? That fight or flight takes place, doesn't it? That the, the, is that the amygdala, right? The lizard mm-hmm. brain, right? That takes over because there's not room for our conscious mind to take that information in, like here's a situation, and process it and respond to that in a healthy manner. We just react, right? Just boom. I have a theory that this might be the cause of a lot of the problems that people think that they have, these diagnoses that we apply to ourselves when we haven't been evaluated by a medical professional. It's just a theory, you know, Um, but I see this pattern really quite often. And I just wonder if we didn't take more time, or if we did, if we took more time to just process our emotions, doesn't mean sitting and stewing in them, but just process like, hey, I spilled some stuff on the counter and I was mad for a moment, you know, but then I wiped it up and I moved on. If we took more time to just experience that moment, how much more time would we have? (laughs) How much more space would we have to have healthy responses to situations, you know? And, and then when the, something big comes up, like right now in our family, we've got um, three out of four 
parents are basically in, in critical care, right? So it's a stressful time and we're not even the ones in the care, but we're, you know, we're worried about the legal issues and making sure that the doctors are taking proper care, that they have everything that they need, that, you know, they're not feeling sad and lonely. Like, we, you know, we're concerned and it takes up a lot of our space. And I caught myself, you know, getting stressed and responding to someone in an unhealthy way. Someone gave me some feedback. Um, it was just healthy feedback about my business saying, hey, you did this thing for me and I really liked it. And I was wondering, could you add this at the end of the service? It was a really nice suggestion. But instead of hearing it and processing it in the moment and saying, oh, that's, that's a really good idea. Or even if I didn't like it to say, well, you know, I'll, I'll think about it. My response was, to push it away, you know, uh, to, 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 to fight that honest and kind feedback. And so that was a note to me that, hey, I'm, my cup's probably running over and I, I need to take a few minutes and figure out, you know, how am I gonna release this stress? I think it's a life skill that we really should have. And I wish they taught that, you know, in kindergarten, um, maybe someday. <laughs> they might do that in you know some of the private schools but i i don't think it's happening in public school no i don't think it is either but it, and that's a great point because that is you know i mean i i have that life where my bandwidth is you know i, I run at about 120 percent of my bandwidth on a regular basis and and that's over time that causes problems and you have to be aware of that and i think the fact that you're aware of that is is just amazing because man it took me years to understand any of this stuff even made any sense at all and, and as i've processed through it i realized yeah i've got a lot of stuff to to work on still here and sometimes i need to say the word no and and funny because i have i've preached this 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 much as to guys in the past like you know, who are talking about, I don't have time for this. And so-and-so wants me to do that. I have a buddy of mine who he works on cars that that's like his hobby. And so he has all kinds of people around him. who will bring their cars to him to work on them. This is not his job. He is not making money working on cars. He's doing it as a kindness to people. And I'm like, dude, you need to learn the power of the ancient words. You know, you'd take the tip of your tongue and press it against the front of the roof of your mouth mm -hmm. and you press it in. And then as you, as you release it make that O sound, go, no, that's the ancient word. It's the most powerful one of all. And, and as I'm preaching, I'm like, I don't even follow my own advice here. I know I don't. I struggle through it too. And I just keep adding to that. And sometimes, sometimes you're, you're going to find out that you're at the edge of your bandwidth. You can no longer operate. You get that blue screen of death that, that Windows Millennium <laughs> Edition would give you all the time, you know, and and you just, you, you get to that place where you lock up and the people around you have to deal with the aftermath of that. And it's, it's taken quite a few years of getting to that point where I'm comfortable with, even in my job, I tell them no on a regular basis and they do not like it. And I've stopped caring that they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you so much time. I, I, I can give you 12 hours a day, maybe. I can't give you 14 or 16. I have too many other things in my life. I have a house full of kids. I have a medically fragile newborn in my house. Well, technically not a newborn anymore. I think she's almost five months old. But, but, you know, I've got a lot of stuff going on, and all of it's more important than your stuff, people. And I'm sorry that that doesn't line up with your wants and desires, but your wants and desires are not my responsibility. And it took a lot of years to get to where I was comfortable saying that. And um, 
it turns out even when I say no, um, I'm still employed at the same place. Been there for 15 years. <laughs> they don't like it that I don't, that I'm not willing to give them 16 hours sometimes, but but that's what I need to do. And I have to take stock on that. So you've learned all this stuff in your life. So where has it brought you to now? Where are you at now with your, you know, with your life, with your family, your career and, and where you stand. And even with, with your, um, you know, the adoptive and, and bio family that you had, where do, where do you stand with all that now? Well, um, as far as with my adoptive family, my adoptive father passed away in 2009, Christmas, 2009. So he's no longer with us. Um, my adoptive mother, she's, um, we're, we're estranged. Um, I've tried to repair that relationship, but um, what is a nice way to put, well, I won't, what is, <laughs> how shall I put this? Um, to this day, she's never dealt with how, she got to be so sad, abusive, you know, emotionally repressive, and she's, re you know, refuses to look at it. She's one of the unwilling. So um, in order to have a conversation with her, I have to be willing to entertain her delusions. And I don't make a lot of space to put up with that. So we don't speak very often. I would say we're estranged. Yeah. Um, my birth mother, we're fairly close. We, we speak every week. Um, I spent Thanksgiving with them this, this past one, um, with her and her, uh, husband and they're, they're very good people. Um, she's a great lady, really glad that she wanted to be found. I, I found her through, um, an adoption search angel. That's a whole story in itself. Um, and then my, Biological father is still um, struggling with drugs and alcohol. So he'll call every once in a while, but he's always high. So, you know, the conversations aren't very good. You know, or he's either drunk or high. So he'll, he'll either call from the bar, say hello, it's dad, and then pass the phone around to the people at the bar, some strangers that I don't know, which is, I, I don't always want to hear that. Um, or he'll just be, you know, completely high and won't, you know, be word salad. So, um, yeah, we're, I would say we're not close. The door is open. Um, definitely the door is open. Same with my adoptive mom, the door is open. But I do expect to have an, you know, an adult civil conversation, and that's not really possible with those two. Yeah. Do, do, do you have a, are you married? Do you have children of your own or? Are, yeah. Is that part of your journey? Yeah, I've been with my partner for seven years. Um, he has a son. So um, I, we, I haven't had children. I haven't actually been able to have children biologically. So um, at this point in life, I'm pretty much given up on that. And that's okay. Um, and then as far as where I've taken this, you know, um, I basically took some of the skills that I built which were, I suppose, survival coping mechanisms, which had been the dissociation. Um, and then also just the mental flexibility that it takes to grow up in a household where people say things, but then their intentions and actions don't align with them. Growing up like that, I had to kind of develop 
Well, these are innate skills that all humans have, but we're constantly bombarded with signals. So we only process so many signals per second. Um, I worked really hard to flex the muscles that would allow me to calculate whether someone's words and intentions were aligned with what their actions were going to be. So it makes me very easy to, it makes me, it makes it very easy for me to read people, um, you know, in person, uh, which is helpful in careers such as sales uh, and also, you know, working for alphabet agencies, but that is not my jam. So um, how I've used it is I help people who don't or are unwilling, they don't want to or are unwilling to um, empty their stress cup on their own. I do that for people. So I, I do that with um, sound healing. I use tuning forks. I go into their field. I usually do it virtually. So I do it over Zoom. I can go in and find areas of stress and kind of read it. Uh, when I use a fork, it has uh, a coherent, consistent sound. So I, I know you know some things about audio and music, so you probably understand this. I'll come into someone's field with a tuning fork. Let's say it's 144 hertz. And that's got a consistent tone. And when I bring that into the field, uh, we we release standing waves off of our body with our thoughts and our emotions. Um, when we release waves that don't fully process, so an emotion that we uh, experienced in the moment but didn't want to feel, they get stuck in our field and they are incoherent. So it's uh, if you look at it as a waveform, like it's it's a mess. It's not a nice you know. It's not like a snowflake. If you saw you know an image of it, it's it's a mess. So when I come into the field with a coherent sound. Any areas in the field that are also coherent, there's just a nice harmonization. It's, it's very, it sounds nice. When I run into something incoherent, the fork will either throw off overtones or undertones, depending on what's in that junk that they didn't want to feel. So for example, if it's alarm or fear, um, that's a higher frequency pitch. So it'll release an overtone off of the fork, so harmonic. Um, and if it's uh, something, you know, depressed, sad, very low, um, also kind of uh, indulgent low feelings like um, sexual desires, things like that, that are unfulfilled will also come in at low frequencies. And so there will be an undertone that comes off of the fork, something lower. So if it's 144 hertz, it would be a lower, uh, a lower harmonic that comes off. There's also a feeling in the fork that when I hold it, it will have like a grindy feeling or a staticky feeling or some sort of sensation that is not, you know, I know this is something that that person doesn't want. And there's also resistance. You know, we have an electromagnetic field around us. I don't know if you know this, um, but we do. Uh, and in that field, the fork kind of acts like a magnet. And when it runs into something unprocessed, it just, it'll, it'll stop. And um, the reason I do this work is that in order to work in someone's field, I have to be able to step out of my own and having dissociated for, you know, so much of my life, it's very easy for me to do this. And the term for that is called uh, in martial arts would be hollow bone. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this term before, but anyone who's done martial arts is probably familiar with it, where you really have to sort of listen to what the other person is doing. You know, what is your attacker doing and feel for that. So even if someone comes up behind you, you know, you know that they were there. Um, it's the same idea dissociating is that I'm not paying attention to my own body's uh, emotions or thoughts or sensations. I am feeling theirs. 
So I can kind of read their life from the outside in like a record with a fork when I use that. And it helps me to, you know, find things that people have had often early in life, whether they were aware of it or, you know, had been aware at the time, but forgot, I can find it and say, oh, hey, you know, around seven, let's say you got hit in the head. And maybe did you, did you have a concussion? Were you unconscious? You know, did something happen? And, you know, it can come to their mind and they don't have to tell me about it. They can, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a therapist of that kind. So they don't have to go into their story if they don't want to, but it, it comes to mind and they'll either have a body sensation or a thought. They might see something in their mind's eye, kind of a memory. And I just hang out with that until that incoherence dissolves. And once that dissolves, then that, that releases any tension that was holding on to it. And then that gives them an opportunity to like have more space in that cup, you know? So um, I basically go through and do that for people. And then once they've released that stress, they're able to just go right back to life. So it works really well if someone's also in therapy because they have someone that they can talk to about their stories. Um, but even just for everyday things, um, you know, the, the stress of new parenthood, for example, or um, bereavement, or um, being in a really uh, chaotic environment, you know, sometimes work environments, especially, there's so many inputs that can be overwhelming to people. So it's a way to just kind of maintain that. And it's a good option for people that haven't, you know, learned how to release stress in other ways. Wow, that's, I've never heard of that. What's, what's that field called? I, I Oh, well, it's, it's sound healing. I personally use tuning forks. So I go through a modality called biofield tuning. And the reason I chose that modality is that it did have a certification method and it, um, it follows the, the science of electric universe theory. So it gives me a, like a scientific approach that I can use. Um, there are other sound healing modalities and truth be told, they all work. It's really a matter of finding um, a practitioner that, you know, that you can work with. So you may have heard of like sound baths, you know, that's another way, or even light therapy is also vibrational. You wouldn't hear the light rays there, but there, there too, I have a frequency for our ears to pick up, but that is another method that can be used. Um, but by doing it through biofield tuning, we don't have to get spiritual. I'm not afraid of spiritual, but not everyone is comfortable with that type of an approach. And I really wanted to bring something to someone who hadn't already been in a long spiritual journey. You know, I wished I'd had something like that when I was first trying to figure out where all my stress was coming from, especially when I was working with those therapists who weren't really equipped to deal with the deep stuff that I had. But I knew that they could help me develop healthy responses to everyday things. So once that stress cup is empty, you know, there's room for those healthy responses that we learn. I think anybody who goes through therapy and most people get an opportunity to do it at some point in their life, either through bereavement or um, even going into marriage counseling, you know, there's, there's, um, there's some of that, or even before getting married, um, sometimes there's uh, depending on, you know, the person who marries you, they may have some requirement to have some therapy and usually they'll cover healthy mechanisms. And so everybody thinks, well, I know the healthy way to respond to this or that. But then in the moment, are they really using those healthy things? So that was my goal is just to help people have, um, you know, a nicer, more graceful life experience without having to be someone who administers drugs or, um, you know, had to go to school for another 20 years. Because at that point in my life, once I learned how to do it, it was like, I 
I don't have time to go to school for another, you know, 10 years in order to be like a, a doctor. So what can I do that would be helpful um, without having to go, you know, invest a huge chunk of my life into re-education? So I chose that. Yeah, that's that sounds really interesting. I, I have not actually heard of that. And all I can say is, you know, we have lots and lots of unprocessed trauma in our house. But, you know, I, right right now we're down to five kids in the house and all five of them come come from trauma. Yeah, that's a lot to take on. Yeah. Some days it's it's more than I thought I ever could. But, you know, God has a weird way of handling handing you things <laughs> that you will learn to handle. <laughs> Maybe I, I, I'm pretty certain I wasn't prepared at the beginning of all this, but I've learned so much and um and you know it's it's a lot of stuff that that we don't understand and you know we just sometimes you just move through it the best you can and that's where we've been but uh that trauma piece you know that that's an interesting approach to it. I've never heard of heard of sound healing before so um that that'll probably end up in my Google search history in the near future <laughs> I'll send you some links if you like that'd be awesome yeah cuz yeah, like I said sure. you know I come from a weird place. My, my wife has, you know, came from a totally different um, traumatic background than every one of our kids came to us through some form of trauma in their life or another. Um, and that's just, that's just who we are. We're, we're the trauma house. And so, you know, the police department knows us well, the, the school administrators know us well. And, um, you know, I, I spent 45 minutes one day educating one of the, uh, one of my kids teachers on, on like the trauma that, that uh you know that that we deal with on a daily basis and here's what you're seeing in class here's why you see this and here's how you can affect this and and the, the interesting thing was is, as i talked with her she you know and, and this is a, a gal who's been teaching long she's getting ready to retire and and she she's she says oh i i understand all about trauma and i'm certain she's had a very intellectual explanation um and because a lot of teachers get taught that but then she mentioned how, you know, right now I'm, I'm just, I'm in a hard place because this is the anniversary of my son's death. And I'm like, oh, so like you're dealing with kids in their own trauma while you're still dealing with your own trauma. And I get it. I'm not mad at you, but you have to understand every little thing that you do here affects these kids in a way that you may not expect. And that's why you're seeing the reaction you're seeing. And this teacher who's been a teacher long enough to retire from the profession goes, Oh, you know, I never really thought that that my actions might be affecting all the kids in class. And I'm like, really? You never thought that thought? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I know that my actions do that in the house, and I, I'm not a teacher, but but you know, she was she was in her own trauma space and and working through something. So it was it was an interesting conversation to have with an educator who's struggling in that you know herself as 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 somebody who's who's lived enough life to be ready to retire yeah, i don't know exactly how old she is and i don't want to guess just in case she ever <laughs> listens to this because i i don't i really don't know how old she is but she's you know she like most of us was probably never introduced to this stuff you know very early in life and hasn't had a whole lot of time to to learn about it you know if someone were developing an education program for educators that actually equipped them to have the tools that they needed to be successful wouldn't you think 
<laughs> that understanding trauma would be one of those things that they would be introduced to. It's almost like um, I, I learned recently that uh, doctors, uh, medical doctors, receive little to no um, education on nutrition. That blows my mind, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, it's the education system is a, it's a funny thing. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I mean, I would think an educator would have put that education uh, curriculum together, but then they didn't consider trauma. Think about how much stress that must also put on the, on the teacher themselves. You know, how are they going to process what comes up in class? Absolutely. That's uh, ironically, it's kind of ironic that you mentioned that because it's something I, I'm looking into right now a little bit um, uh, of being able to, because you can get an education about trauma and how it affects people, a very clinical fact-based yeah. intellectual um, course, and you can learn a lot of facts, but it's not until you've, you've seen it firsthand and been able to, to kind of live in it for a moment that you can truly begin to understand it. And I can say that because because I, I got thrown into the deep end, you know, the very, very first kids who ever came to our house had watched their father murdered. That was our first foster kids, right? That, that was the story of those kids. And I, I was not prepared to deal with that. <laughs> you know, we got thrown in the deep end and, and we've been through many, many, many very difficult you know, placements with kids. And, and I've had to learn this stuff. And I, I think, Part of the problem with this is, is that so many people have an intellectual knowledge, educators, and not to their fault, but it's just the system that we have. They have a, an intellectual knowledge at best. Very few of them have a real true experiential knowledge about what it really comes out looking like. And, and my little guy who, you know, he is diagnosed ADHD. And, and I jokingly say sometimes like they're going to have a, a premium edition in the next DSM. <laughs> and that's, that's going to be like his, but, but you won't, you won't see ADHD in him that presents typically among most kids. He is not typically the hyperactive kid physically. Mentally he is though. If you watch yeah. him and you watch his little brain, when it turns, when it go, when it kicks into hyperdrive, look out. He might not look like the kid who 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 is the standard diagnosed kid for that, but his little his little brain will run you right right square over, and 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 he can't he can't stop and think. He hasn't gotten to that point. We we've, we've been working with him for a long time. We have therapists on board. You know, I have people with letters after their names working to help him work through that, and and we'll get there. But but he's not he's not there yet, and so many educators don't know what that looks like and where it comes from and all the why and i get it it's not their fault that they've they haven't ended up in the weird world that i'm in so yeah. obviously they're not going to have that that knowledge yeah it's also though i think um the other thing that's missing is compassion and i think that's one of the reasons why i chose to work with people who've had trauma is that it allows me to be around the people that i want to be around once you've gone through trauma and come out the other side the level of compassion among those people is unbelievably high. And it is the, the, the EQ, you know, the emotional quotient of people like that, even if they still have a full stress cup, is still incredibly high. And um, the amount of love and caring that people that have been through that is, is phenomenal. And um, for anyone who hasn't been through that, I wouldn't wish trauma on anyone. 
But at the same time, I hope everyone has a chance to have someone like that that's been through it and come out the other side in their life. Um, I think we we see a lot of that in, um, if we look at the, well, in the spiritual community, I think um, most uh, houses of spirit, either churches or any, I'm not going to put any flavors on that, typically have someone um, who's been through a lot or have, have witnessed a lot through their congregation or through their, their group of people. But if you don't have spirituality, I hope you at least have someone like that in your, in your life. And I hope teachers find someone like that too. You know, if they're not spiritual, if they can have someone that can introduce them to compassion and to witnessing what someone goes through on the other side of trauma. Absolutely. Well, Michelle, I appreciate your time today. I really do. It's been a great conversation and not many people walk through the hard traumas that, that you've talked about and, and have come out quite as far ahead as you have, because not only have you, have you come through your traumas and worked through that, but you're, you've chosen to work in the field where you help people with their trauma. And that's, that's such a beneficial thing for people to know that, Hey, I'm not the only one, you know, this, I'm not, I'm not crazy because I'm dealing with this. Nobody's alone in this. No one. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Michelle's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have episodes show up every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at FosterCareNation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. And don't forget, we have an account at Buy Me a Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash foster care. The links to everything is in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled <laughs> Studios. Studios. <laughs>